Section 15 of A Book of Scoundrels by Charles Wibley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. George Barrington. As Captain Hind was master of the road, George Barrington was, and remains for ever, the absolute monarch of pickpockets. Though the art, superseding the cutting of purses, had been practised with courage and address for half a century before Barrington saw the light, it was his own incomparable genius that raised thievery from the dangerous valley of experiment and set it secure and honoured upon the mountain height of perfection. To a natural habit of depredation, which being a man of letters he was wont to justify, he added a sureness of hand, a fertility of resource, a recklessness of courage, which drove his contemporaries to an amazed respect, and from which none but the Philistine will withhold his admiration. An accident discovered his taste and talent. At school he attempted to kill a companion, the one act of violence which sullies a strangely gentle career and, outraged at the affront of a flogging, he fled with twelve guineas and a gold repeater watch. A vulgar theft, this, and no presage of future greatness, yet it proves the fearless greed, the contempt of private property, which mark, as with a stigma, the temperament of the prig. His faculty did not rust long for lack of use, and at Drogheda, when he was but sixteen, he encountered one price, half barnstormer, half thief. Forthwith he embraced the twin professions, and in the interlude of more serious pursuits is reported to have made a respectable appearance as Jaffier in Venice Preserved. For a while he dreamed of Drury Lane and glory, but an attachment for Miss Edgerton, the Belvedere to his own Jaffier, was more costly than the barns of Londonderry warranted, and with price for a colleague he set forth on a tour of robbery, merely interrupted through twenty years by a few periods of enforced leisure. His youth, indeed, was his golden age. For four years he practised his art, chilled by no shadow of suspicion, and his immunity was due as well to his excellent bearing as to his sleight of hand. In one of the countless chapbooks which dishonour his fame, he is unjustly accused of relying for his effects upon an elaborate apparatus, half-knife, half-scissors, wherewith to rip the pockets of his victims. The mere backbiting of envy! An artistic triumph was never won save by legitimate means, and the hero who plundered the dulce of L at Ranoni, who emptied the pockets of his acquaintance without fear of exposure, who all but carried off the priceless snuff-box of Count Orloff, most assuredly followed his craft in full simplicity, and with a proper scorn of clumsy artifice. At his first appearance he was the master, sumptuously apparelled, with price for valet. At Dublin his birth and quality were never questioned, and when he made a descent upon London it was in company with Captain W. H., who remained for years his loyal friend. He visited Brighton as the chosen companion of Lord Ferrers and the wicked Lord Littleton. His manners and learning were alike irresistible though the picking of pockets was the art and interest of his life, he was on terms of easy familiarity with light literature, and he considered no toil too wearisome if only his conversation might dazzle his victims. Two maxims he charactered upon his heart, 
the one never to run a large risk for a small gain, the other never to forget the carriage and diction of a gentleman. He never stooped to pilfer until exposure and decay had weakened his hand. In his first week at Dublin he carried off a thousand pounds, and it was only his faithful interview with Sir John Fielding that gave him poverty for a bedfellow. Even at the end, when he slunk from town to town a notorious outlaw, he had inspirations of his ancient magnificence, and, at Chester, he eluded the vigilance of his enemies and captured six hundred pounds, wherewith he purchased some months of respectability. Now respectability was ever dear to him, and it was at once his pleasure and profit to live in the highest society. Were it not blasphemy to Sally Barrington with slang, you would call him a member of the swell mob. But having cultivated a grave and sober style for himself, he recoiled in horror from the flash lingo, and his susceptibility demands respect. He kept a commonplace book. Was ever such thrift in a thief? Whatever images or thoughts flashed through his brain, he seized them on paper, even amidst the jollity of a tavern or in the warmth of an interesting conversation. Was it then strange that he triumphed as a man of fashionable and cultured leisure? He would visit Ranelagh with the most distinguished, and turn a while from epigram and jest to empty the pocket of a rich acquaintance. And ever with so tactful a certainty, with so fine a restraint of the emotions, that suspicion was preposterous. To catalogue his exploits is superfluous, yet let it be recorded that once he went to court, habited as a clergyman, and came home the richer for a diamond order, Lord C.'s proudest decoration. Even the assault upon Prince Orloff was nobly planned. Barrington had precise intelligence of the marvellous snuff-box, the Empress's own gift to her lover. He knew also how he might meet the Prince at Drury Lane. He had even discovered that the Prince, for safety, hid the jewel in his vest. But the Prince felt the prig's hand upon the treasure, and gave an instant alarm. Overconfidence, maybe, or a too liberal dinner, was the cause of failure, and Barrington, surrounded in a moment, was speedily in the lock-up. It was the first rebuff that the hero had received and straightway his tact and ingenuity left him. The evidence was faulty, the prosecution declined, and naught was necessary for escape save presence of mind. Even friends were staunch, and had Barrington told his customary lie, his character had gone unsullied. Yet having posed for his friends as a student of the law, at Bow Street he must needs declare himself a doctor, and the needless discrepancy ruined him. Though he escaped the gallows, there was an end to the diversions of intellect and fashion, as he discovered when he visited the House of Lords to hear an appeal, and Black Rod ejected him at the persuasion of Mr. G. As yet unused to insult, he threatened violence against the aggressor, and finding no bail, he was sent on his first imprisonment to the Bridewell in Tothill Fields. Rapid indeed was the descent. At the first grip of adversity he forgot his cherished principles, and two years later the loftiest and most elegant gentleman that ever picked a pocket was at the hulks, for robbing a harlot at Drury Lane. Henceforth his insolence and artistry declined, and though to the last there were intervals of grandeur, 
he spent the better part of fifteen years in the commission of crimes whose very littleness condemned them. At last, an exile from St. James's and Ranelagh, he was forced into a society which still further degraded him. Hitherto he had shunned the society of professed thieves. In his golden youth he had scorned to shelter him in the flash kens which were the natural harbours of pickpockets. But now, says his biographer, he began to seek evil company, and the victim of his own fame found safety only in obscene concealment. At the hulks he recovered something of his dignity, and discretion rendered his first visit brief enough. Even when he was committed on a second offence, and had attempted suicide, he was still irresistible, and he was discharged with several years of imprisonment to run. But in truth he was born for honour and distinction, and common actions, common criminals, were in the end distasteful to him. In his heyday he stooped no further than to employ such fences as might profitably dispose of his booty, and the two partners of his misdeeds were both remarkable. James, the earlier accomplice, affected clerical attire, and in 1791 was living in a Westphalian monastery to which he some years ago retired, in an enviable state of peace and penitence, respected for his talents and loved for his amiable manners, by which he is distinguished in an eminent degree. The other ruffian, Low by name, was known to his own Bloomsbury Square for a philanthropic and cultured gentleman, yet only suicide saved him from the gallows. And while Barrington was wise in the choice of his servants, his manners drove even strangers to admiration. Policemen and prisoners were alike anxious to do him honour. Once, when he needed money for his own defence, his brother thieves, whom he had ever shunned and despised, collected a hundred pounds for the captain of their guild. Nor did jailer and judge ever forget the respect due to a gentleman. When Barrington was tried and condemned for the theft of Mr. Townend's watch at Enfield Races, September the 15th, 1790, was the day of his last transgression, one knows not which was the more eloquent in his respect, the judge or the culprit. But it was not until the pickpocket set out for Botany Bay that he took full advantage of his gentlemanly bearing. To thrust Mr. Barrington into the hold was plainly impossible, even though transportation for seven years was his punishment. Wherefore he was admitted to the boatswain's mess, was allowed as much baggage as a first-class passenger, and doubtless beguiled the voyage, for others, with the information of a well-stored mind. By an inspiration of luck he checked a mutiny, holding the quarter-deck against a mob of ruffians with no weapons but a marlin-spike, and hereafter, he tells you in his voyage to New South Wales, he was accorded the fullest liberty to come or go. He visited many a foreign port with the officers of the ship. He packed a hundred notebooks with trite and superfluous observations. He posed, in brief, as the captain of the ship without responsibility. Arrived at Port Jackson, he was acclaimed a hero, and received with obsequious solicitude by the governor, who promised that his future situation should be such as would render his banishment from England as little irksome as possible. Forthwith he was appointed High Constable of Parramatta, and, like Vautrin, who might have taken the youthful Barrington for another Rastignac, 
he ended his days the honourable custodian of less fortunate convicts. Or, as a broadside ballad has it, he left old Drury's flash purlieus to turn at last a copper. Never did he revert to his ancient practice. If in his youth he had lived the double life with an effrontery and elegance which Brodie himself never attained, henceforth his career was single in its innocence. He became a prig in the less harmful and more offensive sense. After the orthodox fashion he endeared himself to all who knew him, and ruled Parramatta with an equable severity. Having cultivated the humanities for the base purposes of his trade, he now devoted himself to literature with an energy of dullness, becoming, as it were, a liberal education personified. His earlier efforts had been in verse, and you wonder that no enterprising publisher had ventured on a limited edition. Time was he composed an ode to light, and once, recovering from a fever contracted at Ballyshannon, he addressed a few burning lines to Hygeia. Hygeia, thou whose eyes display the lustre of meridian day, and so on for endless couplets. Then had he not celebrated in immortal verse his love for Miss Edgerton, untimely drowned in the waters of the Boyne? But now, as became the constable of Parramatta, he chose the sterner medium, and followed up his voyage to New South Wales with several exceeding trite and valuable histories. His most ambitious work was dedicated in periods of unctuous piety to His Majesty King George III, and the book's first sentence is characteristic of his method and sensibility. In contemplating the origin, rise, and fall of nations, the mind is alternately filled with a mixture of sacred pain and pleasure. Would you read further? then you will find Fauna and Flora, twin goddesses of ineptitude, flitting across the page, unreadable as a geographical treatise. His first masterpiece was translated into French, Anno VI, and the translator apologises that war with England alone prevents the compilation of a suitable biography. Was ever thief treated with so grave a consideration? Then another work was prefaced by the Right Honourable William Eden, and all were embellished with beautiful coloured plates, and ran through several editions. Only once did he return to poetry, the favoured medium of his youth, and he returned to write an imperishable line. Even then his pedantry persuaded him to renounce the authorship, and to disparage the achievement. The occasion was the opening of a theatre at Sydney, wherein the parts were sustained by convicts. The cost of admission to the gallery was one shilling, paid in money, flour, meat, or spirits. The play was entitled The Revenge and the Hotel, and Barrington provided the prologue, which for one passage is for ever memorable. Thus it runs. From distant climes or widespread seas we come, though not with much eclat or beat of drum. True patriots we, for be it understood, we left our country for our country's good. No private views disgraced our generous zeal. What urged our travels was our country's weal. And none will doubt but that our emigration has proved most useful to the British nation. We left our country for our country's good. 
that line, thrown fortuitously into four hundred pages of solid prose, has emerged to become the common possession of Fleet Street. It is the man's one title to literary fame. For spurning the thievish practice he knew so well, he was righteously indignant when the London spy was fathered upon him. Though he emptied his contemporaries' pockets of many thousands, he enriched the dictionary of quotations with one line, which will be repeated so long as there is human hand to wield a pen. And if the High Constable of Parramatta was tediously respectable, George Barrington the Prig was a man of genius. End of section 15